everyone. Welcome back to the Earth on Survival Guide, a podcast for all disciplines, paths, players, and game masters, and enthusiasts like Josh and myself. I am Dan. I am Josh. There we go. And on today's podcast, we will be discussing all things quizzical and eventually leading into all things thaumaturgical, because we're going to go over some wizard spells and exactly what to do with picking the spells you want for your initial character creation steps. But first, we have emails. We do. And that uh, is always fun to talk about because this leads to some wonderful discussions. We got one that says we don't have to read it on the air from Kendall, but I'm going to read it on the air because I don't think anything's um, wrong with the email. It's a bad phrase to say. You don't have to read this on the show. Just wanted to say I'm loving the weeks, uh, the weeds exploration involving the passions. By the way, you should find an acoustic version of REM's talk about the passion to use as an intro. I made the reference way back in the when we started. <laughs> I did make the reference. Yeah. We can't pay for that. did want to say it was cool to hear you guys specifically mention Sky Raider as a potential example, Quester of Thoranuas, as that's the passion I immediately pegged as having a somewhat of a trollish raidery spirit and was planning to become a Quester for. While the obvious first thought passion is Thistonius, Thoranuas focus on motion and speed and impact, one could distill that down to violence of action if one wanted, seems to really fit the hypermobile berserker type of raider well. Plus, given the fact that one of Thoranius' larger acts of devotion is raiding, raising your flag on the enemy's side of the field or turning the tide of battle, it provides a great opportunity for a raider to wear some fancy new Sashimono flags. Extra fabulous. Thank you, Kendall. Had to lead with that because I think that just sets off the entire podcast on a nice little tone. So up, we have some questions, actually. I think this is from – I didn't put a name on this one. I'm sorry. I'll find your name. At the end. Uh, hey there, hope you're having a lovely day and evening. I'll cut straight to my questions. One, with the existence of spell magic that is mostly used by name givers, how exactly is it different from the magic used by dragons and horrors? Um, dragons and horrors are a lot more in tune with the natural magic of things. And rather than the constructs that name giver disciplines use for their spells, they can just do things. For rules ease and balances sake, <laughs> they kind of follow the same guidelines in general. Although one of the things that started to be done with some of the more powerful entities is to perhaps just create custom powers that do things similar to spells rather than have them cast spells. But certainly... Spirits can know spells, horrors can know spells, dragons can know spells. Uh, in terms of the action economy and such, it's probably better if they spend actions to weave threads if the spell that they're doing requires threads. I don't know. That's yeah. that's a tough kind of magic theory where setting and system mechanics potentially come into conflict in some regards, Earthdawn is really good in many ways at having the systems reflecting the setting and somewhat vice versa, although the setting tends to inform the system a little bit more. But when we're coming up with new systems, we try and, and figure out how to make that work within what's been established in the setting in the past as much as we can. Understood. So Sebastian has a second question. I did find your name. You will not go unnamed. Not on this podcast. Some horrors have powers that are copies of name giver spells from the books. Where did these come from? From an in-setting perspective, they're just <laughs> things that they can do. 
it's certainly possible mm-hmm. that a horror or dragon, because they have the ability to shape magic natively, they have the ability to manipulate yeah. magical energy to create patterns, and all a spell is is a particular expression of a certain pattern, they can create mm-hmm. those patterns and do those effects. Whether the horror may have learned them from observing a name giver casting that particular spell or whether it's something that they just came up with on it their own. I don't know. I, whatever, like where did the spells come from originally in the first place? That's, yeah. that's a question that we haven't really explored. And I don't know that there's a great answer to that. <laughs> that's fair. It's these things are here now. Um, they weren't always that way. Right. But in terms of a particular but, horror. Yeah. Being able to cast a particular spell, it's possible that they learned it from a magician. It's possible that it's just something that they figured out how to do as a result of their native ability to weave and manipulate magical energy. Yeah. I think it's an answer that doesn't really matter unless it's something that for some reason or another is key to a plot point or story beat in some way. I agree with that. Uh, Question three from Sebastian. Uh, do horrors bother with learning their spells from marked victims, or are they more along the lines of dragons who shape magic to their own will? Either or. Whichever. <laughs> Fair. I figure whatever works for your storyline. Uh, whatever kind of game you're running or playing in. Sebastian, thanks us for a ton in advance. Happy Easter to us uh, in case we get the email around that time. We did, in fact. So, Sebastian, thank you for the questions. Please keep them coming. We hope to have better answers for you in the future. On to Brian. Brian says, I love the podcast. Keep up the great work. I'm really enjoying the discussion of the passions and their questers. I know you have talked about the devotions available to the questers. However, I don't recall you talking about devotion That's abilities. That's because we did Page 136. <laughs> because we, because haven't. we haven't. Uh, have you Have you talked no. about them? No. I think these are a great opportunity for the game master and player to work together to come up with something cool and appropriate to the yes. passion. So to summarize briefly... At the beginning of each tier, so at rank one, the beginning of follower, rank five, the beginning of adherent, and rank nine, the beginning of the exemplar tier is for the questor progression. Each questor gets an undefined devotion ability. There are usually four or five examples that are provided as part of the description in the rules text. But the idea is that these are things that are similar to the karma abilities that various disciplines get that allow them to spend karma on certain types of actions, like the weaponsmith's ability to spend karma on tests to craft something, or Mm -hmm. the discipline's ability perhaps to spend karma on interaction tests. Basically a way for them to kind of channel their magical energy into a particular thing that is in flavor with their mindset and discipline shtick. Rather than create specific devotion abilities. And they're called devotion abilities because like karma abilities, they allow the questor to spend a devotion point on certain types of actions. Rather than strictly define how questors can spend their devotion points in the same way that an adept can spend karma points on particular actions, because we have the flexibility in terms of what powers and abilities are available to a questor through their progression which is what we've been focusing on, is talking about the different themes and and ideas and how each questor can kind of be customized quite a bit to fit different ideas or flavors or ideals of the passion. These devotion abilities are flexible in that same way. And that's what they are. 
we can maybe when we yeah. get into some later episodes on that, touch on those real briefly. But yes, as he says, it is something that is intended to be worked out between the Questor character and the Game Master, the Questor player character and the Game mm -hmm. Master to help refine or further define that Questor's particular focus with regards to the ideals of their patron passion. Yeah. Maybe we can do like a, this is our six part series. Maybe episode seven is the epilogue <laughs> part seven. And that's where we go over each one of those in particular for all 12. So that's, that's a possibility. Thank you for the, we'll have to see what fits feedback, in as, as we cover later on. Yeah. We'll, we'll, but that's basically, yeah, that's basically the idea of it is it's a way for quest stores to be able to spend devotion points to get that bonus die on particular things that they do that should be in line with their yeah. chosen path. I have the idea for a mosaic episode where we have these little topics that aren't necessarily worth longer than maybe five to 10 minutes a piece. And finally sitting Josh down and just going over every single one of those to fill up an hour's worth of time. So that might be part of our mosaic episode as well. So thank you, Brian. Love to hear from you. Keep them coming in. This next one is from Riley. So in listening to the last episode of the Ragok, I had a moment of confusion and had to double check because it felt weird to have a rage and anger god command and control undead. I realized in looking at older books that that was basically true since the beginning. Not only not true in the uh, second edition, it looked like, but it raises questions for me. Why give undead to Ragok? Undead have always felt more to me like a slavery and slave souls trapped bodies. Seems like it should be more the purview of Dis. What were the narrative or story decisions that led to placing commanding undead under him? Thanks for all the hard work. Uh, if we're going to talk originally, I don't know, because I was not involved in those original Fair. development decisions in any remote sense of the of the term. We can save that for the yeah. interview with Lou. Maybe perhaps <laughs> uh, if he listens to the episode and posts his comments on the Facebook thread, as he occasionally does, maybe yes, he will point he, to that. He, maybe he won't. But from my own point of view, the way that I see it and I understand the perspective that would perhaps view that as slavery and potentially going along with this. I think mm -hmm. that the connection that Ragok has with corruption as a notion, I think, although there are three mad passions and all of them are sort of corrupted in one sense, Ragok is much more intimately tied with the idea of corruption and disease and pestilence that the other two mm -hmm. mad passions are not. And I think that association with corruption as a concept ties nicely with the idea of undead, because those are typically also the result of horror corruption and twisting of the natural order. A couple of other yeah. avenues that you could look at it with, Ragok, in his aspect of Brashamon, was the passion of leadership and rulership. So therefore, the ability to command the corrupted natures uh, of undead and so forth is something that kind of fits along that line thematically. The other idea is that in his position uh, of jealousy and whatnot, you could look at the undead as being jealous or envious of the continuing life of mortal folk as opposed to being yeah. undead. And and the the idea sort of conceptually that, that goes along with the notion of undead being jealous or envious or desirous of that which the living have. I mean, zombies going after brains yeah. kind of thing. 
<laughs> Although that <laughs> trope is not actually extant within Earth Dawn, but that's kind of the notion. So no, no. I don't think that it's completely out of left field. I think that there are ways that that can be tied together. And we'll get to this and we'll talk maybe a little bit about what this is involved with. And maybe as part yeah. of that discussion, we'll have some stuff coming up talking about that. But yeah, those are, I mean, that, that yeah. is certainly an interesting point about, well, undead being sort of slavery kind of situation. Yeah. I don't necessarily disagree yeah. with it, but I think Ragok works very, very well as the aspect of corruption and jealousy. No, and he whatnot. raises a good point. Yeah, no, you raised a good point. Uh, not on the original development team, so can't speak to that one, but we can... Here's how I make it work. You know, uh, exactly. We can fit that one in. So we have a long list of questions from Joel. Ah, Joel. Uh, or Joel, if you're French. <laughs> Joel? <laughs> Do you know Joel? Mostly, kind of, yeah. Joel is one of the hardcore oh, lore hounds nice. on the guild. Joel, Joel's cool, so I'm sure <laughs> his questions are really right. great. Here goes. Uh, hello, the podcast remains brilliant, guys. That's mostly Josh. Uh, loving it, but I figured I should send you a few questions. Sensing tests, specifically displace image. If I make an action that counts as sensing a test, does successfully sensing count for that action? Yes. Okay. With displace image, any attack miss, any attacks miss, but count as sensing tests. Do you need to make an attack and sense the illusion before you can attack? I.e., do you always get one miss per opponent? That's the way that I would run it. Yes. That basically okay. the displace image, the illusion that's there makes them appear somewhere else. Mm -hmm. You attack where you think they are. If you roll mm -hmm. high enough on that attack test to beat the sensing difficulty of the spell, I think it's first yeah. circle. So I think it's a base 16. I think don't I don't have the table right in front of me. So don't quote me on that. No. Whatever the difficulty is. Yeah. Obviously can be modified by false sight and blah, 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 all that other stuff. But yeah, if their attack roll is high enough to sense that it's an illusion, they still miss the target, I would say, but they are no longer affected by the illusion going forward, basically because they tried to swing where the person was not. They really couldn't hit. If they are below that sensing difficulty, they miss, mm -hmm. but think that it was because they just missed or the target dodged or did something to continue supporting the idea that they were where they are. But if they rolled high enough, then they sense that it is an illusion and it goes away and they suddenly realize that they were swinging in the wrong place and then can make subsequent tests to the correct location. So yeah, yeah I would play it and say, I, yes, you are going to get at least one, one successful miss out of that spell, regardless of how high the result might be. Yes. Might buy you around. That's that's all. That's fair enough. Um, you were looking. Up I did look it up. It's a second circle spell. Sensing difficulty is seven. Second circle. Okay. Just 17. for edification on the podcast. Uh, question number two or two a three whatever. Is it obvious that someone is disbelieving a spell? Maybe. I don't know. Is it obvious to? It, the I, I think. Well, yeah. I, I think the question is: Is it obvious to the caster or bystander or a bystander that someone is is disbelieving? Mm -hmm. I think there's a look of confusion on their face. <laughs> there's no longer any action or test associated with it. So I don't know that it's strictly required. I don't know. Yeah. Actually, that's a good question and not really one that I had um, not really one that I had considered. 
Yeah, fair. I figure um, that person. I mean, I, I guess confused look on their face. I guess I would reply to that with a question: Is what is it that you are trying to find out? Like, what is the consequence of what is the consequence of knowing that someone is actively disbelieving? Because mm-hmm. as it stands right now, if you are disbelieving a spell, someone is casting a spell on you, and you, you know, and you want to disbelieve it, suspecting that it might be an illusion. All that that does is determine whether you're going to get hosed or not. If mm-hmm. if it is a real spell and you tried to disbelieve it, you know, you are considered to have a mystic defensive two against the spell. If you are attempting to disbelieve yeah. it and it is an illusion, then nothing happens. There's no carry on consequences. I don't know how mm-hmm. other people might take advantage of that because that disbelieving thing at the table that's a call that I would have them mm-hmm. make after the spell or when the spell is being like when the spell has been selected that is being cast. Once that's locked in, yeah. then the target would get the opportunity to decide whether to disbelieve it or not. The caster can't then change their spell that they're casting. Like, it seems to me like this is leading mm-hmm. into a question of, oh, if I can tell that they are actively disbelieving I saw that they disbelieved a previous spell that I cast on them. Am I aware of that to help influence my later castings? I would say, yes, it is obvious in the sense that the consequences of the spell being cast on that person could Mm -hmm. indicate whether they did or not. If you are casting an illusion spell on them and it doesn't take effect because they disbelieved, I think you would the illusionist would be aware of that. Not that there's any yeah, I think consequences so beyond that. Okay, that might influence your spell choices as the encounter progresses. And you would certainly notice if somebody tried to disbelieve and you hit them with a real spell, because it would likely have a bigger effect than it normally would. <laughs> yeah. If that's what you're getting at with that question, then yes. But if you didn't do a good enough spell casting test to actually affect them in the first place, maybe, maybe not. Fair enough. All right, on to something a little bit lighter. This is Dan's comments, not Joel's. Uh, how do Tiskrang spoon? Surely the tail gets in the way. This is from my players. I'd said I'd ask. Uh, this led to some discussion on, how, on Tiskrang's sleeping positions. How do all the races prefer to sleep? With their eyes closed. <laughs> Preferably <laughs> horizontal. Okay with probably yeah. with some kind of padding between them and the ground. I'm okay with that. Bedroll. Bedrolls. Bedrolls are a thing. Yeah, Tiskrang... Their tails are flexible enough that they can curl them around to come up in between their legs. It is a well-known to scrang insult to basically stick their tails up in between oh, yes. their legs at somebody like that. So I think yes. to scrang probably in general do not sleep on their backs, although they could. They probably tend to sleep on their side. And yeah, I think they're uh, like triangular. I mean, side you're not sleepers. talking about like a super prehensile tail, but they can move out of the way. Yeah. I don't know. I think they're like stackable. I think they're like stackable patio chairs. You get enough of them stacked together that it looks like they're going to fall over. That's all I'm saying. But yeah, they can, they can, they, f- they figure it out. They still lay eggs. Windlings keep probably going. don't sleep on their back either. No. Although, I mean, I their, their wings their could front. maybe lay flat and they kind of are looking like pinned butterflies mm-hmm. or something. Yeah, like damselflies. No, I think, I think windlings sleep on their front or their side. Uh, they don't Tends roll over to. unless it's, you know, front to front. Tends to. Um, everybody else, pretty much. Whatever whatever the individual the feels want. comfortable with. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, they're all people. People so, sleep differently. Some people are front sleepers. Some people are side sleepers. <laughs> some people are back sleepers. Yeah, but none of them sleep like a bat hanging upside down. Just going to say that now. Windlings do not sleep uh, like bats okay. hanging upside when down. The... No. <laughs> uh, when does strain happen? If strain would knock you out, or do you get to do the action first, then take the strain? Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the weeds with the minutiae of the of the of when stuff happens. I think whichever way you go, you should be consistent at your table. If I am playing a character and I am at a place where strain would knock me out personally as a player, mm -hmm. I would be hard pressed to do the action do that, that would thing. cause the strain that would knock me unconscious. But that is sort of my yeah. personal choice and style as a player. Mm -hmm. I can also recognize the desire of wanting to push yourself to the absolute limit to do something legendary or perhaps make that final blow that passes you out. Yeah. So I don't have strong official rules ruling on it either way. I think that whatever decision you decide to make for your table for whatever reason, as long as you're consistent about it, is fine. I have always done it as, because uh, the phrase I've used is take your strain and then do your action. Because it's one of those, once you take your point of strain and you mark it off on your character sheet, you have committed right. to that action. You can't renege on that at the last second. So I always say, take your strain, do your thing. That's I mean, those I are basically so. the two choices. Is it is it the situation <laughs> that, is the strain a cost that needs to be paid before you take the action? Or is the strain the consequence mm -hmm. of the action itself? I can see arguments either way. Oh, totally. I don't know that it, I mean, obviously my guess is that it doesn't actually say in the book or the question would not be there, but yes, whichever way you go, whether you take it as a cost that needs to be paid beforehand or whether it's a consequence mm -hmm. of what you have done, as long as you are consistent about it at your table, that's the You're way good. that I feel about it. Yeah. Okay. Claw frenzy. If you miss an attack, it stops your series of mm -hmm. attacks. If your target successfully uses avoid blow therefore missing your attack, I assume. Does it stop your claw frenzy? Yes. Next question. <laughs> Can you repost, the French word repost, a missed attack? I allow it at the risk of, if you roll badly, you can turn a missed attack into an actual hit. Yes. I personally, again, I stylistically think it's kind of cheesy. <laughs> Fortunately, the fact that you can only actually counterattack once per round mm -hmm. doesn't make it as, as bad as it could have been otherwise. But yes, you absolutely can repost a missed attack, which is to say, to throw out numbers, if you have a physical defense of 10 and someone attacks you with a sword mm -hmm. and they roll an eight, they missed you. You could yes. decide to roll repost and use that opportunity if the result is high enough to generate a counterattack mm -hmm. against that target. I don't have a problem with you doing that as the rules are written. Stylistically, no, I don't it strikes me as, no, actually, I mean, I, I personally probably wouldn't do it, but I don't see any reason. Like, again, you would still need to roll high enough. Roll. Morgan... um. I forget. I think this might be in the official errata document that Morgan has kind of put a clarification in for repost and how that works in terms of the counterattack and whatnot. 
with what mm-hmm. we have figured out in terms of special maneuvers and those like spending successes and stuff, I suspect a rework of repost would involve spending successes on doing things. So it probably would would see a touch of of review. But yeah, you can you can repost a missed attack. Fair. You know, whether your swordmaster actually does that or not, I think is an interesting insight into their character. I yeah, I, I would allow that as well. It's just because I like the story narrative of he came close enough, eight, almost ten, you know, maybe give it a shot. Again, you still have to roll and still have to pull it off. So waiting to see. But I'm trying to do a search on the errata page here. Well, the errata doc, if if you're in the Google Docs, there's you can pull up the sidebar, which has basically bookmarks for each of the entries that are in the list. Ah, there it is. And then you can just click on it and jump right to it in the document. That's what I was looking for. Yes. Because I was looking at it the other day because I was making a, an addition to the errata doc and noticed that, that he was talking about, yeah, this was created before we came up with the actual mechanics for things, but it's supposed to be doing yeah. the same thing. So yes, the clarification, using the repost counterattack requires an additional success against the attack test made right. against the defender. So you still have to roll, a, you have to hit a 13 of your, of your eight. So in the example, they rolled an yeah. eight, you so, would need to get a 13 in order to successfully mm-hmm. counterattack. Whether they had hit you or not, you would still need a 13 on your repost test. Yes. The subsequent attack requires an additional success against the target's who was the original attacker, physical right. defense. Repost was written before special maneuvers were conceived of, so written to that effect. The additional success that doesn't count for damage cannot be spent on special maneuvers either. If something requires an additional success, this typically means it's used. So, done. Look at that. Quick search on the errata. Woohoo! Uh, one for me. I've allowed a talent knack that allows a character to use the butt end of a spear or polearm as a second weapon for talents. Stats as a staff. Should I treat each end of the weapon as a separate for forging? This is based technique on things I have done in SCA combat, but is 100% an idea from medieval fighting manuals. So much swordmaster inspiration. If you are going to, I yes. would say yes. If you are going to allow them to attack either with the pointy end or the blunt end, you would need mm-hmm. to treat them separately for the purposes of forging. That's the way that I would handle it because. Well, yeah, because. Well, okay. Blade reforge. They're not necessarily going to touch the handle of the pommel. He said it's a knack that allows him to do that. Is it a second weapon knack or is it a second attack knack? Uh, It says uh, as a second weapon. No, 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 no. For talents. I know. I know. Right. I understand what I I understand what he is saying. You've got a spear. You stab Ah. with the spear and then you club them with the opposite end of it. Mm-hmm. Or somebody else as a second weapon type thing. Yes. Because it's got different stats. It doesn't have the pointy end, blah, blah, blah. What I'm not clear of yeah. from his question is the knack that he has created. Is it a knack based on the second weapon talent or is it a knack based on the second attack talent? Because I think my answer would actually be different based on which way it is. <laughs> on the talent. If it is based on the second yeah. weapon talent, then he is treating them as two mm-hmm. separate weapons. As if somebody had, say, a broadsword and a short sword or a broadsword and a dagger, those would be separate weapons that would mm-hmm. have separate stats and each would be separate for, yeah. for purposes of forging. If it's a second weapon knack, it just allows him to use the other end or sorry, if it's a second attack mm-hmm. knack, just allows him to use the other end, then maybe you would want to treat it as just one. But I think I think the purpose of this and this is actually maybe kind of clever and Joel can clarify in the comments on the thread or whatever. 
I suspect this is a knack that was created to allow somebody with second weapon, like, say, a swordmaster, mm-hmm. to use a two-handed weapon. Because they get second yes. weapon as a disciplined talent, which kind of forces them into the... Two-handed fighting? Yeah. Dual wield. The dual wielding. But allowing them mm-hmm. to have certain swordmasters who might have a certain style fighting with a spear or whatever to get a knack off of second weapon that allows them to essentially use yeah. both ends of a spear or some other weapon like that. I would treat them as separate items to be mm-hmm. raised for the purposes of forging. I agree. I created a discipline for uh, my own personal use using the first edition rules and creating a second, creating a new discipline called the Lancer, which I was trying to port over into Demon World because they wanted something like that. And this is what I was trying to accomplish is they could use the spear as both blunt object, sharp object, and thrown object. So thank you, Joel. Love the question. Uh, Also, a few more from Joel, because like I said, a lot of list of questions here. I allow my players to use second weapon and attack, even if they haven't made a melee weapons attack. For example, when they have stood up or double moved to close the gap. It just makes the game more fun for them, and bad guys do it too. Should I be making them buy this as a talent knack? Probably. I was going to say that was the word Josh was looking for, with all that consternation on his face. I understand the motivation. Getting knocked down and basically having to spend your next turn getting up and not being able to do anything, particularly when you are Mm -hmm. journeyman circle and you've got all of these cool things that are all kind of dependent on your other stuff. I understand the desire to allow them to do things, but it's probably something that should require a knack that's what my gut says fair i have nothing to disagree with you on um yeah next an episode on each cult please or maybe a series of covering a couple like you're doing with the passions i don't have them slated but i do have that as an idea topic yes we're going to get to the cults uh, and all the secret societies of bar save and deconstructing that fun yeah as well so that's coming down the line uh can we also have an episode on dragons Yes, that's coming down the line as well. I have that one soon um, in the 70s, 70, 75, somewhere in there. Um, about to send one of my parties into the Badlands, working with a Grim Legion in a great hunt. Well, that's all my questions for now. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, Joel. So thank you, Joel, for a long litany of uh, things to get into for uh, some errata, because <laughs> those were all over the board, and I don't mind that at all. So not too bad. 30, 35 minutes on some questions there. So now it is time for us to transition. Before we transition, over. do you want to mention one yeah. other thing? Yeah. Oh, cool. We got sort of last minute an email from Kyle. Right. I forgot about this. I'm sorry. That Kyle. we have not had the time to read yet because it is really long. <laughs> no. Kyle, in it's response to Dan's prompt about stories of adventures or whatever that you might have done around Death Sea, sent us a story. Mm-hmm. About an adventure around Death nice. Sea. We have not had a chance to read it yet. It is long. We are probably we not probably going not to deal with it on, the, on air. the air at all. Maybe a special episode. Maybe we'll just like do a do a, a reading or something and have it up. But we haven't even we got the email and we're like, whoa, this is really cool. But we haven't had time to digest that to respond to it. But digest. we did get that, no, Kyle, no. and we appreciate the email. Thank you very much. Yes, Kyle, thank you. And we will take care of reading that later on. 
whether we read it on air is a whole different thing, but I don't care. It's like reading Earth on fan fiction, which I'm all for. So I'm okay with that. Yes. Awesome. Love it. So uh, we are the Earth on Survival Guide, and so we're here to help our wizard characters, our newly formed wizard characters, kind of survive as well with how to pick the proper spells for the campaign that they are going to be going into. So we're going to do a quick reading of all of the first circle spells. We'll get to the second circle if we can possibly squeeze those in. And Josh can tell us exactly what to expect using that spell for, how, why, where, when, all that stuff, uh, for your initial character creation. So on to the first circle spells. I'm pretty sure we're doing wizard first this time around because we can't do all four, all five uh, disciplines in the uh, remaining <laughs> 30 odd minutes we've got left. So this list includes astral space, bedazzling display of logical analysis, which is one of my favorite titles of spells of all times, cat's eyes, divine aura, flame flash, iron hand, mage armor, mind dagger, quick and pace, speed reading, and wall walker. So astral sense, uh, this en enhances the use of the astral sight talent, which of course wizards get, um, they use this spell for many different yes. reasons. So quick bit of history. In previous editions, Astral Sense was another way to view astral space. It was a spell that you could cast that would give you limited astral sensing within a certain area. In 4th yeah. edition, among the efforts to try and pare down even a little bit more some of the duplication and overlap of abilities that were going on, and to start playing with some conceptual stuff that you see uh, also in the Nethermancer, mm -hmm. having some spells that interact with some of their talents and improve or offer different options with talents. Astral Sense now basically extends the duration of the Magician's Astral Sight talent. When they cast the spell, they can use Astral Sight without spending strain. And yeah. rather than working with the traditional just kind of view cone in front of sight, it kind of gives them a, a yeah. limited 360 degree view. So they could sense the astral mm -hmm. presence of someone who is behind them, which a normal astral sight role would not normally be able to do the way oh, wow. that most people kind of interpret that sort of thing. Yeah. So this is a really handy spell to have if you're going to be doing any kind of extended astral study or analysis of a person or place or whatever, because it allows you to yeah. do that without the extended strain cost that use of the talent would normally require in such a case. Yeah, this is one of the few spells I like to refer to as a Swiss army knife. It's so useful, you don't want to be without it. Because astral sight so normally only lasts for a number of rounds equal to the character's rank in the talent, whereas the spell increases that duration to minutes. Even better. So really helpful with your uh, CSI <laughs> in, uh, being a wizard. So If you're going to be playing a wizard, um, this is a spell that, you, that I think is one of the, the no-brainers as far as selecting it. Yeah, anybody could, it doesn't matter the campaign you're in, Astral Sight is so incredibly useful, useful an ability that having a spell that makes it yes. free to use is yes. definitely worth uh, exploring. So on to 
Spell number two, Bedazzling Display of Logical Analysis, which is a, like I said, my favorite title of any spell of all time. Uh, and I know it's a carryover from first edition. It's just beautiful. This is basically reinforces the integrity of arguments or debates. So who might want to pick up this spell? This spell well, this and is why? a spell that because it provides a, a bonus to verbal charisma tests. Mm -hmm. And we've talked in the past about interaction tests and things like that. This yeah. would provide a bonus to many, to many interaction tests, not necessarily all of them, but many of them. Mm -hmm. Plus four bonus is definitely not something to sneeze at, especially sneeze at. for <laughs> a character who is, might end up being something of the, the party spokesman mm -hmm. or that kind of thing. You know, if you've got other characters in the group who are more social in nature, like if your group has a troubadour or a weaponsmith or sword master, this is a spell that maybe yeah. not be quite as important. But if you're a group that does mm -hmm. not actually have a social heavy character, this is a great spell that can supplement one's abilities. It would influence haggle. I mean, it affects any charisma based test. So yeah. haggling. Mm hmm. Uh, any kind of general impression making where you're talking to the individual, you know, there are some limits on what it can do. Obviously, if you no, don't share a common language, it's probably not going to do much good. But yeah, there's that again, a plus four bonus to charisma based tests where you're talking. If you're looking to influence or manipulate yeah. or whatever, it's a great, great spell. Yeah. If, if you want to be the leader of your party, this will help you convince the rest of your party that you should be the leader of your party. Just saying. Uh, onto Cat's Eyes. Uh, this spell grants the ability to see in near darkness. So again, it's more of a sensing type thing. So who would who would not want this? How's that for you? Yeah. If you've got humans or obsidimen or windlings or Tuscrang, none of those mm -hmm. who really have any kind of see in the dark ability, Cat's Eyes, it's a touch yep. range spell. It can grant that ability to anybody. So... Mm -hmm. The ability to allow folks to overcome darkness penalties, uh, especially if you're going to have a campaign or a game that might be de delving into either skullduggery or other kind of operating in the darkness situation or care diving or any kind of yeah. situation like that, where half of the available name giver races don't really have any kind of see in the dark ability, the ability to grant that to them even if the magician themselves yes. might have it, can come in handy. I'm playing a Tuscrang scout, and I'm not running along around with a wizard near me, so I would love for a wizard to drop by, join my party, and give me cat's eyes. That would be also helpful. But, not there. Um, Divine Aura. The spell detects aspects of the aura of living beings. So who would want to use this? And this ties why? in kind of nicely a little bit with the bedazzling display of logical analysis. This is an investigative social spell. It can provide similar ability to empathic sense, which is a talent that can also provide sort of emotional insight. That can be something that can help provide clues if you are investigating, interrogating people. It would kind of work nicely with Bedazzling Display if you know what a target is feeling or you are able to sense the changes in a target's aura, then you could potentially use that information to sway or know what's going on with regards to stuff like that. Yeah. 
onto flame flash. This is, of course, I mean, love the first word, fire. Yes, because who would not want to set things on fire? It's so useful. Yep. <laughs> it's a short range, reasonably, like comparatively for its circle, high damage spell. It is limited by yeah. the fact that it's reduced by physical armor, mm-hmm. but it can set things on fire. Yeah. It reminds me of the George Carlin joke. And yeah, let's set those people on fire over there. And it lasts two rounds. So it does the damage twice. Um, I think it's comparative damage. Uh, Want to check real quick. Yeah. Will plus five. That's not a bad step. It actually does more damage than earth darts, which is the other sort of circle one physical mm-hmm. damage spell. Yes. So it does a little bit more damage than earth darts. It requires a thread, but it also does it over two rounds. So this is sort of That's... Nethermancers get spirit dart and astral spear as yep. kind of their range spells. One of which is lower damage. Mm-hmm. The other one is higher, but requires a thread. This is the same thing. Flame flash requires yes. a thread, does more damage than mind dagger, but has the added benefit mm-hmm. of being able to set things on fire and lasts for two rounds. So it potentially does even more. Oh, yes. Even more damage. Exactly. So I can't imagine anyone not taking an offensive spell, but that's just me. Iron Hand, uh, a plus three bonus to close combat damage tests. A wonderful spell to have around if you're hanging around with a whole bunch of other combat yeah. people, I think. The so amount of damage that can be effectively contributed to an encounter by casting mm-hmm. a damage enhancing spell on your swordmaster or warrior or sky raider or troubadour or somebody who is going to be waiting in there yeah. and, and beating on stuff with a weapon. If you would cast a mm-hmm. spell that takes zero thread, so you have it ready and you just cast the spell and then they have the next two or three or four rounds to contribute that plus three bonus. Now, granted, they need to hit, but when they do hit, they're yeah. getting that added damage <laughs> in there. This is the the contribution enhancing sort of thing. I understand that people like casting their fireballs and magic missiles and things like that, and they're those are available. Yes. But mm-hmm. I've always felt, not just within Earth Dawn, but in fantasy gaming in general, that the spells that enhance somebody else's capabilities in some respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tends to be overlooked because they are not as flashy. Yes. Well, and I also, this is in the same vein to, to talk about similar spells. This is a similar vein to, um, Knight's Edge, which is a Nethermancer spell, uh, Arrow of Night, which is also a Nethermancer spell. I obviously know the Nethermancer spells pretty well. (laughs) Flame Weapon, which is an elementalist spell that does a similar kind of thing that provides an enhancement to a character's weapon when they are dealing damage with it. And again, don't discount the fact that you can throw this out and especially once you get some circles under your belt and your spellcasting rank is up into rank three, four, five, whatever, you are providing a plus three bonus to damage to that weapon or to that character for each attack that they make. That adds up after a while. And well, is not anything to turn your nose up at simply because, oh, it doesn't involve arcane energy blasting your foes from out of your hands. Yes, but this is also a reminder that in Earth Dawn, wizards, if you want to, you can pick up a skill to use a weapon with. That's and true. And you can give yourself a damage boost with this spell. You don't have to be a D&D wizard. That is and, also you know, a possibility. only rely on your magic. You can be an Earth Dawn wizard and pick up a skill 
to let yourself use a sword if you want to, or a dagger, or whatever else you want. So, yes, there is that. Mage armor, which just sounds fantastic. Uh, it's a plus three bonus to physical armor. It's a great defensive spell. You can yeah. use it to protect no yourself. Threats. You can use it to, to protect your allies uh, that are in the front rank and potentially getting mm -hmm. beat on by opponents. Plus three to physical armor. Air armor from the elementalist does the same thing. It provides a, a bonus yes. to to armor. And it says a range of 10 yards. You don't have to actually touch the person yeah. near you. So this is like Sue Storm from the Fantastic Four, you know, throwing an invisible bubble around somebody nearby. So, yeah, I, I can't see a reason not to get that, especially if you're going to be doing a whole lot of there's always combat somewhere. It's not fantasy but. gaming without some <laughs> swords getting slung. Some kind of combat. Exactly. Uh, and then one of my favorite spells of all time, Mind, Mind Dagger. Mind Dagger. Zero thread spell. Bread and butter yeah. wizard spell. This is the kind of basic ranged attack. It doesn't do a lot of damage, but it does mystic damage, which is always mm -hmm. nice to see because mystic armors tend to be notably lower than physical lower. armor. And it has the added effect of penalizing the target's physical defense. So in mm -hmm. addition to dealing a little bit of damage, it actually makes it easier for damage to be dealt to the target potentially on, on, on the subsequent round or, or if you happen to be acting faster early in the round than physical attacks that go on against them afterwards have a little bit of better chance of hit and dealing damage as well. Yes. This is the spell my, when many years ago I was playing a wizard, I actually used this spell um, a number of times in the round of combat. And I happened to go almost last, second to last, a lot of the time. And I was using this spell. The person who went next in line happened to, air quotes, kill the opponent, kill the creature, right after I had done the last points of damage on it. But since Mind Dagger is invisible, nobody saw me do it. They took all the credit. Yeah, and Publicly. Mind Dagger's damage scales with successes. So if you roll a really nice spellcasting test with Mind yes. Dagger, it's going to do more damage than the base. It does an additional plus two steps damage for each additional success on the spellcasting test. So the, the damage can scale. Yes. And when you get really good results or when you have a high spellcasting, you know, when you're a higher circle character with a higher spellcasting step, mm -hmm. you're going to be getting those higher results and doing even more damage with your... Like I said, bread and butter ranged attack spell. Yes. Mm -hmm. So some combat's going to happen. This is, we got like, you know, two good ones here, right? Uh, two good ones. Yeah. Flame flash and mind dagger so far. Quicken pace. This uh, increases your walking speed. Maybe not as versatile as people think, but yeah. We talked a little bit with Floranius in, in the episode about the passion, how nice it is mm -hmm. to be able to sort of increase your movement rate. Movement rates in... More recent editions of Earth Dawn were scaled back compared to what they were in previous editions, and the ability to yes. increase movement rate can be handy. Probably, maybe not necessarily the highest priority, but if you've got a group that might be a little heavy on the Obsidian and Dwarves who have those lower movement rates, not yeah. be a bad idea to have a spell that can help them pick up the pace when necessary. Yeah, may not be your first choice. But may come in handy. And it's as got well. a base duration of hours. So that's something that is more useful. Especially than you think. when you get higher along, that's something that you can break out early in the day and not have to worry about it. You can swap mm -hmm. that out for something else and still have its yeah. effect be around. I have made a number of getaways where I didn't have to be the fastest. I just had to be faster than the last guy. 
So that happens. Speed reading, which doesn't sound all that useful, but to a wizard. Wizards are researchers. This is a spell that provides a bonus to research tests. The idea being that it is easier for the wizard with this spell in effect to find the information that they are looking for. Can be very useful if you are using it in in an attempt to find key knowledges. If you're doing research in a library, perhaps to find the, the key knowledge for thread items. It could be very handy if you are exploring a care and you come across the, the civic hall where they've got records and so forth. The ability to perhaps go through those more quickly could be very handy. I would actually, while it provides a bonus to research tests, I would probably allow this to enhance stuff with book memory. If you're a wizard that's picked that up, the ability to more quickly go through stuff. I don't actually know without checking the writing, the specific wording on the book memory talent, whether that would interact, but it feels to me like it's a spell that should. I think it was written for that. Well, that's just me. Except for the notion, (laughs) the given effect is that it provides a bonus to research tests, which is to say that it is kind of a spell that interacts a particular way with a wizard talent. I think mm-hmm. some, as a GM, I would allow creative uses of this spell for other things. I'm done. For there that. is a slight downside. While this spell is in effect and they're using it, they do suffer a penalty to perception tests for other stuff that, yeah. that's happening around them. Well, yeah, you shouldn't be able to multitask while you're speed reading. You're really trying to absorb the information. <laughs> Don't want to scramble any eggs while you're speed reading. Uh, and lastly, at first circle, wall walker which I love the picture for, uh, improves your character's climbing ability. You'd never know how often you're going to be climbing until you don't have wall walker. (laughs) Yeah. Because it especially, again, if you've got a game that's going to be dealing in care delving and situations, climbing stuff is kind of a not uncommon obstacle in fantasy adventure gaming. So a spell that will provide the less dexterous members of the party the ability to climb better because falling damage in this game yeah hurts having a spell that enhances really, people's really ability to <laughs> climb can come in handy because not yeah. everybody can fly most people can't fly nope certainly one at one first circle yeah nobody but windlings can fly nobody yeah one of the eight um yeah, falling damage is one of the places where you can get multiple wounds uh, as soon as you hit the ground. So, wall walker is more helpful than you'd possibly think it is. So, not bad for a, first, uh, a set of first circle spells of the ten. Uh, what, two offensive? Maybe three if you count Iron Hand is offensive boosting, since I know a lot of people hate the term buff, and that's a thing. So, boosting or enhancing. We can cover second circle real quick, because as you're making your first circle character... You can pick up a second circle spell. You won't use it immediately, but you at least have it near you. And you should get to the second circle pretty darn quickly. So we can go through the second circles as an option to pick up on your initial character creation. Astral Shield enhances a character's resistance to yep. magic. Provides a bonus to Mystic Defense, which is nice to have. And similar to Iron Hand or Mage Armor, it can be cast on other people. So it's not just to enhance mm-hmm. your own mystic defense. It can also enhance those of your allies. can be really nice to yeah. slap a mystic defense bonus onto your swordmaster or warrior who tends to have lower perception attributes and therefore lower mystic defenses. <laughs> yes. 
and it's a zero thread yeah. spell. So that's as, as often as you want to use it. Uh, baseline subtraction. This is another spell is specifically created awesome to interact with a wizard's talent. Wizards get a talent called Astral Interference. They can slap mm -hmm. down an energy field that increases the difficulty of casting spells in the area. Uh, when they cast baseline subtraction, they can ignore those difficulties, whether it is one that they put mm -hmm. down themselves or whether a rival wizard has thrown down an astral interference area. Yeah. So, yeah, they can uh, baseline subtraction, by the way, also good in places like the Badlands. So anywhere there's any kind of corruption. Or you think there's any kind of corruption. Uh, crushing Will. I have cast this a dozen times. Yeah. It's fantastic. This is a damage spell. It does decent mystic damage at a healthy range. It's a 50-yard range, which is the longest oh, damage yeah. spell that we've encountered with the wizard thus far. And also provides mm -hmm. penalties to the target's mystic defense. It's kind of a souped-up, slightly modified version of Mind Dagger. Uh, Mind Dagger is a little bit shorter range, does <laughs> yes. a little bit less damage, and does a penalty to physical defense. Crushing Will, mm -hmm. more damage, further range, and provides a penalty to Mystic Defense, which makes following up with another Crushing Will even better. Oh, yeah. And one thread. It's worth it. Dodge Boost, also a zero thread spell, uh, 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 provides a plus two to avoid blow tests. So it directly interacts with a talent. So you can give this to anybody who happens to have. Or give blow. it to somebody who does not have avoid blow so that they're no longer defaulting to base dexterity dexterity to yes. do that because avoid blow is a default talent anybody can roll base mm -hmm. dexterity to try and avoid blow but generally speaking there's not yes. much sense in doing that but providing the bonus uh that dodge boost provides can be handy so just stating for the record it says to avoid blow tests josh just clarified you don't have to have avoid blow to, to be a beneficiary of this spell so uh, rope ladder again, climbing things. Apparently wizards like to uh, scale up the sides of buildings. Just kidding. Uh, yeah, rather yeah, than providing just a flat bonus to climbing tests, this allows the wizard to direct a rope to a particular location, but it provides a bonus to people that are using it to climb. Yeah. Uh, it holds a maximum weight of 600 pounds. So careful with your obsidian. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't, you don't have the control over it to tie it off to anything, mm -hmm. but you can do Helps some clever stuff with the ability to control where a rope can go and stuff. There are certain things that can be done with that for the suitably creative. Exactly. And the last second circle spell for wizards to pick up upon initial character creation, Seeking Sight. It has a plus three bonus to ranged attack tests and heightens your vision and focus. So we've had... Iron Hand, which basically enhances the attack capability, the damage capability of your melee combatants. Seeking Sight is a spell that does a similar sort of thing for ranged characters, provides bonus to mm -hmm. their attack tests. You cast this on an archer who already has other archers actually probably don't need this quite as much because they tend to already have a lot of really nice attack enhancing stuff, but this can stack even more on top of it. Yeah. Uh, this is actually probably a mm -hmm. bit more handy for a scout or some other not primary ranged. Also, again, maybe you, you mentioned how there's nothing that stops a wizard from picking up melee weapons. Perhaps they pick up missile weapons and they use this spell to yeah. provide them 
a bonus to those attacks for for that sort of thing. So uh, it's uh, again range touch. It's not something that is exclusively to their own use, but it's an enhancement spell that allows even more bonus for for ranged attacks. And because it's ranged attacks, that applies to both missile and thrown weapons. Yeah. So I could see a wizard walking around with a nice long spear. That is not a bad list of spells to go along with your first circle wizard. Those are your, uh, most of those are going to be your bread and butter. You're going to have eventually probably all of t- uh, first circle spells unless you really don't want one. Um, but I can't see a reason not to pick up a bunch of those depending upon the party that you're actually in and the adventure that you're going on or the campaign that you're involved with. So most of those are incredibly versatile to use. And in a lot of situations, you'd be using them frequently. I imagine so. If anybody has any questions on spell use that we just covered in this list, we'll get to the other disciplines uh, as the episodes go on further down the way. We'll get to the Elementalist and the Illusionist and, yes, the Shaman. We'll go through all their spell lists and do the exact same thing for your character creation spell list and see what's good for you to use and what's better for certain certain circumstances throughout all the first and circle spells. So if you have any questions for us, please feel free to contact us at edsgpodcast at gmail.com. We, of course, will read everything on the air you want us to, except for that lengthy one from, yeah, that's just a whole separate thing. Um, but any reasonable questions, we'll, of course, answer and go from there. Any final thoughts on what we talked about today, Josh? Nope. I think we've covered everything pretty nicely. So thank you again, everybody, for joining us. You know where to find us, both the email and the social medias and the stuff like that. Yes. Quick bit of news. Uh, if you backed the Empty Thrones or Champions Challenge Kickstarters, you should have seen the notifications that went out about locking in your email addresses or your mailing addresses for physical product. We finally got the product delivered to the warehouse. We've got a pallet that's being put together to ship all the stuff out to our international distributor that will start sending things internationally. And those are probably unfortunately going to take a while because shipping is still kind of crazy kooky. Yep. But domestic US stuff should start going out here. Um, Should have actually, by the time this episode goes up, should have started going out. Yay. So you should start seeing stuff in your mailboxes here before too much longer. I backed them both. So I'm getting both products. So they'll be here soon enough. Uh, Until next time, folks, when we talk about the passions and the questers again, uh, it's time for you to go cast a spell over your own legend. Good night, everybody.